If you want to reduce your open source risk, you got to get with my friend Sonatype. They are a software supply chain security platform that is trusted by over 15 million developers to help them secure their open source libraries with confidence. So go over to Sonotype.com to visit my friends and learn more about how Sonatype can help you secure your open source vulnerabilities. Afternoon podcast. What up, hackers? It's your host and best friend. It's Amy Tom from the Hackernoon podcast. And today we are going to get into some cybersecurity shit with Cam Canales, who is the cybersecurity advisor at CDW. So welcome to the podcast, Cam. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Amy. I just want to tell everybody that it is such a vibe when I get to interview someone that I actually know from my real life. Um, so Cam and I used to work together three over three years ago um, in the cybersecurity sales department, and then he be- later became a cybersecurity advisor. So I'm excited to hear from you. I'm excited to pick your brain about where your cybersecurity knowledge has gone and uh, things like that. So stoked that you could be here. (laughs) Yeah, me too. No, it's definitely been quite a journey since I last saw you. So probably a lot to catch up on, but I know we have a limited amount of time. So if uh, that story comes up, I'll try and keep it short. Yeah. So as a security advisor at CDW, first off, can you tell me a bit more about what you do and how you gained your cybersecurity knowledge? Loaded question. Um, So at CDW, I basically am a part of the risk advisory service practice. So we're pretty much um, a part of the overall security practice at CDW. But basically what we do um, is we deal with point in time assessments. So any organizations in Canada that need a penetration test, vulnerability assessment, social engineering campaigns, um, all the way to red team engagement. We do those and black box, white box, as well as gray box tests or tests. And then we also do or help organizations align with um, certain standards like ISO 27001, um, the NIST cybersecurity framework, uh, and multiple other uh, different types of frameworks. So depending on the client and depending on their needs and where they want to go in their security journey, as well as where they're at, will kind of depend on what I recommend to get them to the next uh, kind of step that they need to be at. Okay, compliance and risk assessment. And in what kind of industry? Industries. Anything specific? Um, any industry, really. So I deal with all kind of all Canadian companies, whether they're small or large, can be anywhere from banking all the way into the energy sector. So it really depends on yeah what what industry they're in. And that'll kind of determine what's being tested and what's important and what's critical to them and what business or what data flows where and who interacts with it and that kind of thing. And then that's kind of what allows us to determine the company's risk and what their appetite is for risk and all that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. And as somebody who, I guess, like has this very close contact with people in the cybersecurity field, like CTOs, CISOs, things like that, where you're able to ask them like very pointed questions about their security. I have some questions about like how the industry has progressed since I've been in cybersecurity, definitely, but I guess like over the past couple of years and particularly around zero click attacks, because that's something that scares me maybe the most of anything that's come up in the last three years of like cyber threats of vulnerability wise. So can you tell me more about what a zero click attack is? Yeah, for sure. So um, basically a zero click attack, it's a type of malware that doesn't require any user interaction. Um, so basically a user won't have to click a link 
bank or open a file in order for their asset to be compromised. And usually what we've seen is those assets generally are cell phones or some sort of mobile device. And so they can be known vulnerabilities that a vendor will patch usually as soon as they find out that there is a, that type of vulnerability, or it could be a zero day, zero click exploit, which is pretty much probably one of the worst situations you can run in because mm-hmm. not only do you not know about it, but all someone really needs is a phone number. And then they can send that kind of uh, that malicious code and it'll inject into the device. And it's usually due to messaging apps having to parse data, which basically just means taking data from one source and and translating it into uh, the program that needs to be able to read the language. Okay, let's so let's break that down a little bit. So zero day, meaning that the vulnerability has not been exposed in the past before. So it's a new zero day vulnerability happening on the zeroth day. (laughs) And zero click, meaning that there is no user interaction required zero clicking required, right? Yeah, pretty much. And then just to clarify the zero day, it can be a zero day or it can um, be a known exploit that right. just somebody might not have updated their their phone or might not have pushed a patch in time. And, you know, someone who was targeting that person came across that vulnerability and they were able to exploit that without the end user's knowledge. Because like you said, the end user doesn't have to click anything. They don't have to open anything. Um, and the reason why organizations and individuals should care about this type of attack is because all someone really needs is is an active phone number. So if your phone number, not God forbid, but if your phone number is on your LinkedIn profile or your social media pages, all someone needs to do is some open source intelligence. If you are um, you know, a valuable target for one of those organizations that would be leveraging those type of exploits, and then essentially you'd be, you'd be kind of hooped just because if your phone number's out there and they have access to it, it's, you pretty much can't prevent the attack from happening. You can only really mitigate the risk, if that makes sense. Yes, which is wild. Yeah. Um, and it, it makes me nervous. I mean, good thing I am not like a Bahraini human rights activist. Uh- <laughs> That is like going to be targeted. (laughs) Probably nobody wants my information or my company's information, I hope. But um, yeah, like last year in late 2021, uh, I think there was like a Citizen Lab report that's like that's a Canadian um, organization that does reporting on different attacks and vulnerabilities. And they uh, reported on a NGO attack where this NGO hacking group like sent a iMessage to a Bahraini human rights activist and then was able to install the malware in there to get like geolocation information and like things that were uh, relevant to their campaigning, their human rights activism um, that was like detrimental to their campaigns. So um, that was like one of the most recent examples of zero click. So that involved a iMessage being sent to this person's phone. So you're saying that a lot of these zero click attacks have to do with like iMessage, WhatsApp, like kind of messaging platforms. Yeah, so that's usually the case um, from kind of the past events that have happened that um, have been reported. It's usually a a cell phone running an application like an iMessage or like a WhatsApp. And it's really mainly because when an application parses data, it's usually in text format. So it basically takes a string of text, kind of interprets how it needs to in order for the application receiving the message um, in order to read it and, and display it to the end user. And so it's just a functionality in that process that creates the vulnerability. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely scary from a, a personal perspective as well as an organization. Um, to your point though, I mean, it really kind of has to come down to if you would be targeted, mm-hmm. not only 
mainly is a zero click, click exploit. I wouldn't say they're rare because they're out there and we've seen them happen more predominantly recently than, than in the past. But unless you're someone who is related or affiliated with someone, let's say, who might be an activist or might be someone dealing with sensitive information, you most likely won't be a target, right? Because the mm -hmm. amount of resources and the expense that is not only to develop a zero click exploit, but these organizations will also purchase these exploits on the dark web for large sums of money. Ooh. And so there are, if you can kind of think of it, um, there's right. actually programmers that will actually develop these zero click exploits. And how I like to think of it is, is almost like they're um, like a dark market arms dealer. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's not really a lot of ethics when it comes to it. It's like this yep. is a program. Um, you can buy it if you want. It doesn't really matter what you do with it. And really, just for everyone who's listening, it's really what a zero click exploits designed to do is really just to deploy spyware on your yep. phone and basically kind of figure out like me and Amy were chatting before the call, you know, where someone's location is, what sensitive information mm -hmm. they might have in regards to. Um, what they might be reporting on, that type of classified information. So it might be sensitive to them, but might not be actually uh, regulated from an industry standpoint. So yeah. a lot of times they're being targeted and, and having those files or those data or that data being removed from uh, their devices or they're having their devices completely compromised and, and wiped or, or yeah. something of or that Or some nature. kind of like ransomware situation. Like I think there was a thing with Jeff Bezos in like 2019, I want to say, where yeah. he was like uh, attacked by a Saudi Arabian prince that he knew uh, with a zero click uh, so that they could ransom his data, I'm pretty sure. So that's another one like uh, ransomware is uh, for companies, I think is that's another gateway entry for point for them, right? Yeah, there's a lot of ransomware as a service offerings mm -hmm. um, on the dark web based on uh, different groups that'll offer it. But right. yeah, no, that's definitely one of the attacks that came up. Yeah, in mm -hmm. the past was um, I believe that's actually one of the first ones I had ever read about just was, yeah, the Saudi prince, I think, had some sort of a physical affiliation um, and a meeting of some sort. I, I probably am speaking on it incorrectly, but yeah, they had some sort of affiliation with Jeff Bezos and they were able to basically hack his phone and, and kind of under, understand how his life was operating yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. super invasive stuff yeah it was crazy and then there's like what so what were the like industry you know standpoint or knowledge around zero click attacks and things uh, of that nature when uh something like pegasus comes into play where it's like a f whatsapp phone call that is the catalyst for the malware yeah so Essentially, like Pegasus is, is the software that that basically um, was developed by the NSO group, um, which mm -hmm. is based out of Israel. I won't really speak too much of my opinion on them. But yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's an interesting how do I say this? I guess it's a, it's an interesting, I guess, business venture when you're developing tools like that that can be used um, to abuse power. And yeah. so when I came aware of that, I actually um, was somewhat in disbelief that an exploit was actually out there that was at that capacity or that basically you didn't need to click anything or interact with it. And if someone just yeah. basically wanted to point a, an exploit at your at your device, it was basically going to going to be exploited. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I actually learned about the NSO group um, on on another actual podcast, uh, one that I personally listened to. Can I give them a shout out or? Yeah. What's it called? Um, you might've heard of it. It's Darknet Diaries. Shout out yep. to Jack mm -hmm. Resider. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. I listen, as about... long as no one is going to jump ship to different podcasts, you can listen to that one and the Hacker New Podcast. <laughs> 
for sure. No, but yeah, that's actually how I uh, how I found yeah. out about NSO Group. So um, did some research after, found out that they did develop the Pegasus software, and um, that's predominantly the uh, the spyware, mm-hmm. the zero click exploit that's being used um, mm-hmm. when we actually uncover these events. And then there's also uh, another organization in Israel called Kanduru, or it's spelled C A N D I R U for those mm. listening on the call. Um, and they also develop a spyware um, technology as well. They both claim to be technology companies. They're both based out of Israel. You can create your formulate your own opinion on on that type mm. of uh, organization, if you will. But yeah, that's what they uh, that's what their focus is, is developing, developing spyware. Right. But what is the general public like implication or I guess like reaction to that kind of thing? It's a good question. Yeah, sorry for, I guess, uh, missing that one. But um, yeah, I think the implication the implications, I guess, if you're being targeted can be pretty significant. That's why I think threat modeling. Right. But you never is, know when you're going to be targeted. That's No, you problem. don't. That's the thing is, so you should almost expect um, it's not it's not if, it's when kind of thing. Right. So um, especially in, in cybersecurity in general, whether you're dealing with it on a personal level or at an organization level, you should always be prepared to obviously deal with some sort of incident response. So um, I think the implement key or the implications from just the general public is it's it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's a bad thing or a good thing. I think that any sort of awareness around something like this is is a lot more positive than not, because right. um, if you know that something can happen, you most likely are going to be more prepared for it to happen. And I think preparation is the key first and foremost. So um, some best practices people could take just to kind of mitigate the risk if that were to happen to them was um, like if you are, for example, dealing with sensitive information or sensitive data in your job, one, I would recommend rec- regularly backing up that data, hopefully to an offline source. So if you know you have a work computer, for example, and, and there's sensitive data on the hard drive, maybe buy an external hard drive and back the data up to mm-hmm. that and air gap that hard drive so it's not actively connected to some sort of network. Um, so if a device does get hacked, they can't pivot to that hard drive and they can't you know eliminate that data yeah. as well so you have some redundancy i also recommend if you are working with sensitive data or you might be you know let's say your spouse works with sensitive data or in the government or any sort of situation where they might be targeted by one of these attacks use two phones use a work phone and a personal phone that way if one mm. gets compromised you're not um, having both compromised i would also um, regularly update your phones I know that that's probably, (laughs) um, you know, a logical one, but make sure that your devices are updated because as vendors do find these vulnerabilities or um, are notified of these vulnerabilities, they will issue an update usually quicker than, you know, a regularly Mm -hmm. scheduled update. So they'll, they'll basically issue an update right away. So you can keep your devices updated and your applications updated. That's always recommended. I'd also Mm -hmm. purge any applications that are not being used on, on a device. So proper decommissioning of an application from a device. If you've downloaded an app four or five years ago and you don't, or haven't used it and it probably hasn't gotten an update. There's no sense of having it. Um, so why run a service or why use an application if you're not going to be using it? I would also recommend using um, multi-factor authentication when needed um, mm-hmm. or where you can when dealing with uh, sensitive information. So if you're dealing with banking websites or um, any sort of, you know, of, of those of that nature, um, I recommend doing two-factor authentication. That way, if you are breached and someone tries to log into uh, one of your websites or one of your accounts, you can at least have some uh, redundancy there. And then I also recommend using a, a password manager. So if someone does get on your phone, um, right. you're at least not going to be using one password um, for every single account. And I know that's usually the case when when speaking to, to my family and friends and um, 
just it's it's a common mm-hmm. practice you know create a, mm-hmm. a a strong password it's usually hard to remember in the first place so generally i'm just going to use that for every account because the one the one account yeah. i used it for told me it was strong so um i generally yeah. recommend if you can using a password manager and then creating a, a strong master password and usually what i recommend for that strong master password is not a password itself a passphrase so a passphrase is a lot mm-hmm. harder and more complicated to attack and, and break from an attacker standpoint it will exhaust uh, an extensive amount of resources before that's actually accomplished. So if someone does want to go through with that, it is um, a very calculated risk. So as an example, um, I actually wrote one down, like you could put my dog Fido's birthday is November 19th, and he's currently two, like that could Mm -hmm. be a passphrase. And it's simple to remember, because you'll always remember that your dog Fido is birthday is on November 19th. You may not always be two, but um, you can obviously change that up, right? So yeah, yeah, just some, um, I guess, some recommendations for the general public. And I guess if you're an organization looking for um, any, you know, mitigations that you can. Okay. Yeah, actually. So those, but those seem like a very uh, individualized recommendation. So what are the recommendations for organizations that want to protect their devices and their data um, in general, and also, is there anything that they can do about zero click attacks? Um, I mean, organizations can take those best practices as well and, and put them in a in policy form more so, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, obviously, documented policies are always kind of first and foremost with an information um, security management program. But um, actually making sure that those policies are enforced and, and operating in in production is kind of, um, you know, another challenge that organizations are obviously dealt with. But from a policy standpoint, those can be kind of implemented um, pretty easily. But I would always recommend, obviously, with any organization from just a, a secure design principle would be defense in depth. Obviously, the more layered security approach that you take within mm-hmm. um, the enterprise, the better off you're going to be. I know it's a little bit more challenging now with a distributed workforce with COVID. Um, so obviously, there's that layer of complexity, but there's nothing that you can really do to stop the attacks from happening. Like I mentioned before, the right. best thing you, you can do is assume that you'll be breached and have some sort of incident response plan in place, um, not only documented uh, from a tabletop perspective, but also practice um, and actually executed just like you would in sports, right? You don't just show up to a game based on a reading a playbook, right? You actually practice right. the playbook and you run the plays throughout the week. And then you have kind of a game day on, on the Saturday or Sunday or whatever. I'm a sports right. guy, so I like those types of references. Okay. But Yeah, I was just going to say, oh, I almost just blanked out as soon as you... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. So uh, actually, I want to ask you more about the different like vulnerabilities, I guess, that have come up with the bring your own device and work from home policies that have been in place for the past you know, two years or, you know, coming up into hybrid work and stuff like that. So what are some of the things that uh, CISOs uh, <laughs> are CISOs. most concerned about right now with uh, the uh, work from home implications? Um, well, there's probably a, a wide range of concerns, um, but I think the biggest concern, um, and you can probably attest to this just based on we worked in the past, is when you're distributed or when you're working from home, unless an organization has some form of cloud-based asset management system where they can consistently talk to a device that's off their corporate network and, and bring in intelligence from a perspective of who has the device, what's on it from hardware and software, 
there? Where is that device located? How that mm-hmm. user is using that device, that type of thing. So you can't really protect what you can't see. Visibility is usually first and foremost, one of the most important things for a CISO, especially in a distributed workforce. And the reason being is before the distributed workforce came to be, obviously there was, you know, people working remote before COVID, but obviously when COVID happened, it became a lot more, a lot more popular. And then transitioning back, I think a lot of people, like you mentioned, are, are going to stay hybrid. So mm-hmm. um, the the kind of the main thing was just making sure that when someone was working remotely, they were able to actually get visibility into those devices because you can't protect what you can't see. Right. So yeah, I think um, I think with BYOD, with people especially starting remotely, that can be a challenge as well. They, for example, weren't exposed to the company culture uh, from a security perspective, so they might not actually have that security acumen as a for, kind of forefront thought as an employee mm-hmm. to make sure that they're not clicking links and that kind of thing. That's why I think security awareness training is almost more important now than ever, just because if you haven't even, if you haven't even been able to connect with your employees in person because they've started remotely and they never come in, I think being able to bring awareness of, I guess, the risks with working from home are a lot yeah. more important now than they've, than they've ever been because a lot of CISOs are relying on user awareness um, first and foremost, and then right. obviously their controls and their and their programs second. Mm-hmm. Which is a good thing, the user awareness piece and like uh, training your employees to understand the vulnerabilities themselves because... When we talk about this kind of thing where there's like that big overall organization shift, not just at an organization level, but at a global level where everybody now all of a sudden is working from home and it's like shoving a square peg into a circle hole of like now all of a sudden my um, very much in office workforce is working from home and just having a distributed network, the security implications of like one, acting fast to control all of those devices and two, having that visibility to understand like where they are and what they're doing. Um, So what was the, it must have been hard, what was the transition period like for organizations when they were going between like that, like I want to say old old school thought process of like all of my employees definitely always work from the office to all of a sudden like oh no one can anymore like what would be the biggest challenges is that what the question was? yeah like the the transition between that in-person workforce and going in and securing your global or your yeah maybe even global remote workforce? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question, especially from a CISO standpoint, because obviously a CISO's job is to ensure, obviously, the organization is protected from a security standpoint, but also majority of their job is to make sure that the organization uh, can continuously make money, right? So yeah. um, there's that that healthy balance that needs to take place, especially when yeah. when balancing the two. So being inside kind of the, uh, the organization's walls is a lot easier um, to kind of make, mm-hmm. you know, a lot easier to make money and secure kind of the castle, if you will. Um, whereas once uh, once your workforce becomes distributed, not only do you have to make sure that that workforce is now secure, but they're secure enough where they're not prohibited from doing their job. Yeah. Especially as salespeople, for example, right? So right. if you have your predominant, your sales force is distributed and, you know, they're kind of the main contributors to your bottom line, 
you need to make sure that that's not impacted too much where, you know, things are going to be kind of slowing down from the revenue perspective. And there's obviously that kind of cost benefit analysis that um, all organizations do. But I think kind of first and foremost, the main challenge was, is how do we secure these devices enough that aren't on our corporate network um, Mm -hmm. to ensure that they're not going to be breached or they're not going to be vulnerable, but also they're not going to be um, too locked down where they can still, you know, do their job on a day-to-day basis and and make the company money. Because at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. a company is only in business when they're making money, obviously, if they're not making money for too long, they're uh, right. They're not a company anymore or they yeah. get bought. Right. Okay. So I guess the name of the 2020 game for the CISOs were to have a distributed workforce with up and running business critical applications that was secure. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah, nail, nail on the head right there. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that things will continue to change as well when more and more companies adopt this hybrid model because I think right now at least from my perspective a lot of companies are still operating on that nearly fully work from home model so um, I think more and more as people go into the office not only from like a working perspective business critical critical application perspective where it's like how do we run these meetings when there's like five people at home and 20 people in the office but also like securing the network and the applications and all of the other things when you have people who sometimes won't check in to the corporate network sometimes will sometimes they're in hawaii sometimes they're in boston like (laughs) it's gonna be crazy yeah yeah it's definitely gonna be and i think a lot of times too uh or a lot of the situation right now is um i think they don't really know what they don't know yet because i Mm -hmm. you know some organizations are staying hybrid some organizations are saying no we're going back to the old way things were um and then some people or some organizations are like well why do we need an office Mm -hmm. right um, after kind of seeing their productivity uh, from a distributed standpoint. So if they can save, you know, copious amounts of money on their overhead on, let's say, you know, a downtown office and we'll use Vancouver as a as an yeah. example, because that's where I'm based. Um, why wouldn't you want to save that amount of money per month and, and put it into marketing or, you know, that kind of thing, right? So I think um, it's really important if you're a CISO to understand your organization's kind of threat profile. And I think that's why I said threat modeling is a, is a very important exercise to understand mm. kind of the who, what, why, how. Um, um, right. Questions what and answers. is threat modeling? So threat modeling is basically, um, I'll probably botch this explanation, um, but it's basically <laughs> analyzing what type of logical attack paths would your organization face depending on what industry they're in, if that makes right. sense. So for example, if my business is in the energy sector, you can use the MITRE attack framework, which is a, it's a website that you can leverage. It's um, it's also an organization, but basically you can actually see what type of, um, you know, APTs or hacker groups, mm. if you will, use uh, different types of techniques and, and tactics to breach or attack the energy space. And oh. so you can kind of figure out based on what, you know, what industry you're in, what type of data you deal with, how your network segmented, those types of situations, you can kind of gauge what your overall kind of threat profile would look like from uh, an attacker's perspective. And you can you do that I just at a visualized, holistic level. Like going into a store and then being like, which apocalypse kit do I need? The zombie apocalypse kit, the vampire apocalypse kit, like <laughs> everything that they need to prepare for like the hacks and the disasters. <laughs> 
That's yeah, what no, it sounds a, like. Yeah, it's basically what it is, right? It's basically kind of going and figuring out because um, not everyone has the same value to an mm-hmm. attacker, right? If you thought of it from an attacker standpoint, if I, you know, hacking, let's say a government organization versus hacking like a preschool, it's two different values, right? To that attacker. Um, mm-hmm. I, I obviously couldn't say which which one or the other because I'm not I'm not an attacker, but you know, everyone has a different um a why behind why they're doing things and a different motive. So depending on where you fall can kind of give you some insight on what and you know where or why an attacker would target you if that makes sense that's why i said if um if you know if you're a journalist or if you're dealing with sensitive information you might be you might want to do some more research into zero clicks attacks you know if you're Mm -hmm. someone um that's just like a stay-at-home parent or something like that probably don't really care about them yeah. But if you're a stay-at-home parent and your spouse is working for, you know, the government of the United States or whatever, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you might yeah. want to be aware of that kind of stuff, right? So there's that kind of, uh, there's that concept of seven degrees or six degrees of separation where you can basically get to someone through just six people. So yeah. attackers know that as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, right. so aside from threat modeling, what would be your number one piece of advice for businesses to secure their network? To secure their network? Um <laughs> I mean, have or, you know, just secure their data and their devices, I guess. We'll have a, have an information security management program, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I think governance, risk and compliance as a holistic view when it comes to security is always kind of the first step when implementing uh, an effective security program. Because if you don't understand um, what the organization's kind of motive is from a revenue perspective and what you know regulations they have to comply with and that kind of thing, you won't really know what to purchase and why to purchase what. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So if you have that governance, risk and compliance strategy in mind as you're building your information security program and purchasing technology, I think it's going to be a lot more effective in the mm-hmm. long run instead of having to go and, and redo things without that governance, risk and compliance at the forefront of uh, you designing think, your network. Do you think there's a particular organization size that it becomes appropriate to hire a compliance specialist? Internally? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of teams or a lot of organizations are plagued with the, you know, the lack of resources and the lack of security personnel um, in the industry. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say or not say um, that hiring a clients officer or hiring a, a GRC person is a yes or no thing. I think that comes down to a ton of different variables, budget, um, what type of, you know, risk appetite you're kind of have industry. as an organization, industry, that mm-hmm. type of thing. I don't think it hurts to outsource that. Um, from an ad hoc approach. I know, mm-hmm. shameful plug, at CDW, we do do those ad hoc consultations. So if someone does want you know, some sort of virtual security office per se, you know, they can reach out to us on an ad hoc basis. Um, They basically would have an allotted amount of bucket of hours that they can use to leverage us when those needs come up. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to feel like they need a a full-time salaried employee in order to Mm -hmm. have that resource. They can basically use the bucket of hours that they would um, purchase through us. And then essentially, wait, when do people know that they need that resource? Usually after speaking to me. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, Usually I speak to a lot of organizations organizations. Um, and it's not, it's not a bad thing, but a lot of organizations don't know what they don't know. Right. So mm-hmm. they're coming to, to us to kind of say, Hey, you know, we have, 
um, all of our T and infrastructure or all of our IT and infrastructure is, is in place, but I'm not a security person and mm-hmm. I don't want to be, um, mm-hmm. I would rather someone else do that and, and, and not take the risk on myself. So what do we do? Right. And that's kind of where we come in to kind of figure out what they have now, where they want to go and then that kind of thing, and then figure out what's best for their business, depending on if they're an international company, if they're just a, a local organization, just trying to stay national, those types of, uh, those types of situations. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Right, cool, Cam. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. If we want to find you and what you're working on online, where can we look? Probably LinkedIn would be the best. It would be Cameron Canales. So I can always just um, link it to you. And if there's podcast notes or whatever, you can always find me in uh, in there. But yeah, it's just Cameron Canales at LinkedIn. So C-A-M-E-R-O-N. And then my last name is C-A-N as in Nancy, um, A-L-E-S. Perfect. I'll put that link in the show notes of the episode so y'all can find Cam. And thanks so much for listening to this episode. I love y'all so much, my little hackers. Um, I love doing the podcast. I love this every single day, and I'm so grateful to be your host. Uh, if you want to find Hacker Noon online, you can look at for Hacker Noon anywhere on socials, as well as at hackernoon.com to read more about cybersecurity or other tech-related things. And as always, stay weird, and I'll see you on the internet. Bye-bye. Afternoon podcast.